Do you want to know more about vampires, werewolves, zombies, and man-made monsters? Would you like to know more about the classic Universal Monster movies responsible for creating the entire horror genre? Then listen to our podcast, Let's Talk Monsters. Where we discuss everything monsters. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. From the Apostrophe Podcast Network. In 1979, on a summer evening in the suburb of North Miami Beach, 14-year-old Richard Brush and his friends were just looking for a little weed. They had been in the house of their Boy Scout troop leader and mentor, Carmine Falco, many times before. Carmine, or Chuck as he was better known, had a reputation in the neighborhood for being an all-around great guy, and, for the kids at least, for always having plenty of weed. It was a cool night for South Florida, with a balmy breeze rustling through the trees and a few quickly moving clouds in the sky. The boys walked over to the house on North 11th Court and, going around to the south side, approached a small bathroom window. After getting a boost from one of his friends, Richie enters the bathroom and, knocking his knee on something, probably the bathtub, says, fuck, which everyone thought was pretty funny. And then there was a gunshot. And everything changed. Welcome to Booby Trap. This podcast is a story about a tragedy that happened over 40 years ago. While the case was, more or less, solved and then closed within months of the crime, this series will offer alternative explanations, not only of the crime itself, but of the chain of events leading up to it. The crime in question was the fatal shooting of a 14-year-old boy. 
The aftermath of this shooting, including the justice system's failure to incarcerate its chief architect, as well as the ramifications of such a failure, will also be discussed. The story is as much about the time and place as the crime itself, and we'll explore what it was really like being a young teenager in the late 1970s. Season 1 of the Miami Chronicles Booby Trap, Episode 1. In 1979, South Florida was in an advanced state of deterioration. The hoppin' nightlife that's now synonymous with South Beach was still 10 to 15 years away, while the glitz and glamour brought to Miami Beach by movie stars and gangsters just decades before had become a distant memory. The 70s marked an all-time low, epitomized by Jewish and Italian grandmothers sitting poolside in their lounge chairs while the paint chipped on the once glorious Art Deco hotels. By 1979, the tension between white and black had been building for decades. In the mid-1960s, hundreds of black Miamians were forced from their homes to make way for a new freeway. And in July of 1979, when four police officers beat a black salesman to death and were then acquitted of all charges, the neighborhoods exploded in violence. The death toll now stands at 11, with more than 120 persons injured in the riots, looting, and fires of last night at the Bay. Affected areas are still reporting sniper attacks, and from almost any point in day, bodies swarm from This became known as the McDuffie Riots in reference to the victim, Arthur McDuffie, and they were still a good 10 months away from the events told in this story. Also, by this time, Colombian cocaine had infiltrated the streets and suburbs of the greater Miami area, and the first of many deadly shootings had just taken place on July 11th at the Daedlin Mall in Kendall, a suburb southwest of downtown Miami. The bloody massacre dominated the news for weeks to come. So when the death of a 14-year-old boy was reported in the Friday edition of the Miami News on the 20th of July, the story barely made the front page. The headline, Boy Scout Killed in Leader's Booby Trap, was confusing and easy to miss. Placed in a small box at the bottom of page one. Well, I feel shaky as I can be. Mike Fragameni has been a friend of mine for almost 30 years. We played together in a couple of bands in the late 80s and early 90s. I asked Mike what it was like growing up as a Gen Xer in the suburbs of South Florida in the 1970s. Um, at the time, North Miami, North Miami, North Miami Beach, that general area yeah. was 
a really nice middle class, upper middle class area. Um, it was safe. It, the area was settled in the um, 1920s. It's not a very old area. And then there was this huge hurricane that hit in 1926 and sort of set back the development of, of that whole area. It was like really bad hurricane that like just devastated the whole area, mainly the Keys, the Florida Keys. But um, by the end of World War II, they started building up the, the suburbs there pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, m- most of that time it was primarily white, I would say, you know, your typical Anglo-Saxon Protestant community. Um, remember, South Florida isn't uh, this deep south. You know, people tend to think that all of Florida is like the deep south and Bible Belt. It's not. When you get south of Orlando, um, South Florida actually becomes more like the Caribbean. It's more of a tropical area. Um, and it's, you know, it's it's more of an international zone. And All the hillbilly stuff is up more towards... Uh georgia and stuff like that right yeah yeah exactly well well yeah definitely the middle of florida and then northern florida that's where all the rednecks are but what started happening in the 40s and 50s was more and more italians were moving into the area um italian americans and cubans were coming up from um, when castro took over in the late 50s right so a lot of middle class um business owners capitalists from cuba who didn't want to stay in a communist country they took all their money out of the bank and they fled Cuba and they, they came to Miami. And uh, the other group were... What did, the, uh, what did the white people who are already there think about that? Well, obviously they didn't like it at first. But, but what's amazing about it is that, um, you know, after about, you know, by the time I was born in 1965, um, I think, you know, the area sort of fused, it gelled <laughs> and everyone sort of learned how to get along and, um, and it was safe. You know, it was just... It was a safe, pleasant area to live and to grow up. We had our sort of our beach, um, North Miami and North Miami Beach. Um, even though it's North Miami Beach, it's actually not really on the beach, but it's just like North Miami Beach is slightly north of North Miami. Okay. Um, but if you continue to go east, from North Miami Beach, you'll hit Collins Avenue. Well, first you'll hit Sunny Isles and then Collins Avenue, and then that's where the actual beach is. And the beach over there that we used to call our own was called Hollover Beach. There was a pier, a fishing pier, and it was called Hollover Pier. And um, so a lot of the stuff that I write about in my book, there's a few incidents that take place at that beach, you know, because that was sort of like our hang, hmm. you know, as um, as kids. How long did it take you to, to get there from your house? Like, would you ride your bikes or something like that? I would say it was a few miles. Um, okay. And, you know, those suburbs weren't really built. Uh, they're built for cars, you know, so it's not really bike friendly when you get on like bigger like boulevards and arteries. It's kind of, you know, you, it's it's kind of dangerous. Yeah. We would drive. I mean, everyone had a car. I mean, by the time you were 15, you, you had a driver's license and you could 15, 16, you could drive. And it was only like a 10 minute drive from our houses. So, the yeah, the beach was, you know, a couple miles, two, three miles. I don't know. I can't remember exactly. Actually, more than that, maybe four miles. But yeah, I mean, we we had no problem getting there. So, so to answer your question, um, you know, we all could get to the beach one way or another. Either we hopped a ride with someone or, you know. But we did do a lot of riding bikes. So that was pretty much our culture. Like from the time I was, you know, 10 until, you know, I was about 17, 16, 17. I mean, that was my mode of transportation. 
So being a teenager then and now, each generation changes and each generation seems to have its own advantages and disadvantages and uh, usually dictated by how your parents grew up. But yeah, maybe not now because things move a lot faster. You've had kids and your kids are grown up now. So you watch them go through their teenager years as well. Uh, suppose that would have been in the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s. 2000s, yeah. yeah. So kids, like kids, it's a universal thing. You know, we're all human beings and kids will just act like kids. But I think what was different, especially the late 70s, early 80s when I was in my teens, was just the difference in the parents. Um, there seemed to be two kinds of parents. There's the ultra strict type and then the neglectful type. And a lot of these other kids that we're going to be talking about in this story have similar parents. They're either neglectful or they're extremely strict. Most parents who are my age, the last thing we wanted to be was like our parents. We didn't want to be neglectful and we didn't want to be strict, too strict. You know, we wanted to let the kid feel his or her way around and get to know the world on there, have an experience as a child. Um, but we also protected them. We really hyper protected them. And the reason why we did was because we remembered the 70s and how crazy shit was, you know, or <laughs> like, you know, your your my mom would just let me and my brother like stay out all night, and like ride our bikes and just go anywhere. We didn't even have cell phones. We didn't have anything. I mean, I mean, I'm surprised more of us weren't killed, you know, in accidents. Yeah. I mean, it's just like. You know, when you think about it, it's 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 kind of amazing. and It's pretty incredible. Yeah. The way that I was brought up, I was allowed to make mistakes on my own. Um, but I also didn't have much of a safety net. And also, I think a big difference between the two generations um, and the two approaches is that communication is so much better between me and my children because when you have that closeness, when you're directly involved in your kids' lives, um, you're a parent, but you're also a friend, you're a confidant. And so if something bad happened to them, you know, like really bad, like what we're going to be talking about in this story, um, they would confide in, in, in either me or my wife, you know, they would come forward and it didn't matter what the, you know, repercussions were or consequences or anything which is unheard of for yeah for us for at least for myself first thing i would think of is how am i going to hide this from my mom and dad <laughs> exactly exactly and that's you know that's the difference you know i mean and that's a big difference because that is a key component to this story because like i said the different parenting styles were either very strict, so you wouldn't tell your parents because you didn't want to get grounded or get in trouble, or apathetic. And if your parent's apathetic, then you don't feel like you have a relationship with them anyway. Like, you feel like, well, she wouldn't give a shit anyway. Or, you know, my dad wouldn't care mm -hmm. anyway, so why should I tell him? He's not on my side. He's not, you know. So what we did was we confided in each other. And what that created was a community, a community of friends. And that's why when I tell this story and I say things like, well, I just know that this is the truth because I remember the way that we communicated back and forth in those days, that we would never tell the cops something. We would never be honest with the teacher or the principal or, or some authority figure. We would always make up something and bullshit to them. But we were always honest with each other, you know? 
because we trusted each other. Even friends who weren't the greatest of friends, even friends who were just acquaintances, we would, you know, we would really go out of sort our... of a unwritten code. Yeah, exactly. Back then, yeah, that's it. Being a kid in the 70s was really a different time. Those of you who were there, you'll know what I'm talking about. We did what we wanted, and no one cared. It's not that our parents didn't love us. I guess it depended on the type of parents you had. Some kids, their folks were really strict, and they weren't allowed the unlimited freedom that some of us had. And some kids, well, they might even compensate for this lack of freedom by forging a close relationship with a respected adult in the neighborhood. A kid like Richard Brush. Richie and I were friends probably from about, I'd say, third or fourth grade. Um, I, you know, he, he and I went to the same elementary school. He was a year older, um, but then he failed a grade, so we wound up being in the same grade. Um, I didn't consider my friends from school to be close friends. I mean, I, as a matter of fact, I used to call them uh, my friends from school. I would actually condition it like that and say, oh, that's a friend of mine from school, as opposed to my friends right. who lived in my neighborhood, like my, my immediate little square area. Um, but I really came to know him more uh, because of another friend who lived down the street from me who happened to be best friends with Richie. And I would see Richie around um, visiting him. So in addition to seeing Richie at school, I would also see him in my neighborhood. It, the thing is, is we just never became friends. We never really hung out until seventh grade. And what happened in seventh grade was we finally had a class together. We were in junior high and we had a history class together. And since we had this one mutual friend who lived a few doors down from me, we had something in common. We had something to talk about in that class. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we liked each other's company. And once again, I wouldn't say he was a good friend. I had other friends at the time who were better friends. But um, in that particular class, I considered Richie to be one of my friends. But the first time I ever hung out with Richie one-on-one was we cut class together. We cut that history class. Okay. (laughs) And we crossed the freeway. They had a catwalk that would go over the freeway. And we went over the catwalk and we went to Northwest 7th Avenue to a place called Myers Subs. And, um, and we just got bought a couple subs and we just hung out and talked about rock and roll music. And he wasn't a musician, but he, he loved music. And he, I was already starting to play the guitar at that point. And I couldn't shut up about, you know, rock and <laughs> all the different kinds of rock bands that I liked. Right. So he wanted to pick my brain about that stuff. And, but um, I, I just remember it as being a very pleasant day. Like it was, you know, one point we thought we were going to get busted because there was this truant officer named um, Ferguson. We, we just called him Fergie. And he was, he was this big, big, fat black dude. And he was really mean. And he would like, yeah, he would paddle you. And, like, <laughs> and there were rumors about him like just throwing you in the car and like punching you and stuff. Holy and, shit. Uh, so yeah, Fergie.
so that was a good day. And, and I would say that was pretty much the foundation of my friendship with Richie was just that one day. He and I hung out again a couple other times. Um, but all in all, I would say that on a scale of from one to 10, with 10 being like my best friend and one being just someone you wave to once once every blue moon, I would say Richie was a solid five. You know, he was like somewhere in the middle. Right. What sort of kid was he? How would you describe him? As far as the kind of kid he was, I would say, you know, he was a very smart kid. Um, he he had strict parents. So of, of the different kinds of parents I was talking about earlier, he had the strict type. Um, so he, he was very often grounded. Uh, I would say the main thing about Richie really defined him was his involvement in the Boy Scouts. He was a dedicated Boy Scout, and from all accounts, he excelled. He won all the medals. He was a leader. Uh, he was not the oldest kid in his Scout troop, but he was sort of voted the leader, um, even by some of the other Scouts who were older, by two years, two or three years. There were a couple Scouts who were 16, 17, and Richie was only 14, and they were just like, nah, he's it. He's the leader. Mm-hmm. Like, he's, you know, among the Boy Scouts. You know, there was also the Scout Master. And, uh, you know, he often wore his Boy Scout uniform, so you, you'd see him from time to time with that. And, uh, and, and it definitely was a big part of his life. He enjoyed, I think... The good thing of the Boy Scouts, you know, camping and um, survival skills and things like that. Like I said before, he was a smart kid. Um, I wouldn't say I was envious of his intelligence, but I definitely was impressed. You know, I was like, wow, he's kind of a smart kid, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, a smart kid like that, too, is very, uh, you know, forms good relationships with a lot of adults, too. A lot of adults seem to, to really like a smart kid like that and want to sort of foster their potential and possibilities. Tell me about the relationships he had with other adults. Right. So, you know, the main adult that, you know, he befriended was Chuck Falco. Actually, his, his real name's Carmine, but everyone just called him Chuck. And um, Chuck lived two doors down from Richie. And I think they met in 1977, I want to say, 76, 77. Um, Chuck moved from New York to Miami and just happened to move into the house that was two doors down from Richie on the same side of the street. Um, and it turns out that Chuck had been involved in the Scouts since 1961, since he was a, a kid. Um, Chuck was about 30, 31, 32 at the time of the incident. Um, and Richie, Richie really liked him. I mean, they were pals. I mean, you wouldn't think that there was an age difference between them, 15 years or whatever it was, uh, 15, 16 mm-hmm. years. Um, uh, Chuck said numerous times that, that Richie was like a son to him and, and was uh, very mature for his age. And Chuck admired his intelligence and his aptitude, you know, and everything, you know, everything that had to do with scouting and, and all of the stuff that these kids enjoyed doing, you know, which is fishing, shooting guns, camping, you know, survival skills. Right. But the rest of us, you know, who weren't interested in that, we we didn't go that route. I didn't, you know. I I I wanted my freedom, man. I you know, I like TV too much. <laughs> and <laughs> right. uh, you know, and yeah. you know, electricity, man. I need electricity for my guitar, you know. So, yeah, so, so you know, the friendship there was solid, you know, and and there was trust between the two of them. Um Richie uh it didn't take long for him to uh, start doing chores for Chuck. Um, you know, Chuck would hire him and pay him, you know, for a kid, five bucks is a lot of money. You know, Chuck would pay him five, ten bucks for watering his lawn, mowing his lawn, 
um, running little errands for him. And um, he wanted to help Richie. Like he wanted, you know, I think he saw him as his protege. Like he, I think he saw a lot of himself in Richie. And and every everyone will attest to that in in all of the documents that I've looked at, and then just from my own memory, uh, Chuck was first described to me by the scouts and Richie's friends and people like that. Is you know Chuck was this really cool guy. You know he was really super nice, and you know he cared about kids. Um, his job was he worked for the county, and so he would work one week, a solid week, down in Kendall, which is you know southwest of downtown Miami, and he would. Uh, work with kids, he and his wife, you know, they would work with, you know, kids coming from really messed up families, you know, like um, the age group running anywhere from between like 12 to like 17. So these weren't little kids. These were, you know, these were teens with troubles, Mm -hmm. you know, coming from broken families, you know, parents who were drug addicts or alcoholics or abused kids, you know, and so um, they would work for a whole week. They would basically be uh, surrogate parents, so they would set up, I think they even refer to it as like a parental environment. This was all paid for by the community. They had a house set up and then they would rotate uh, different parents you know, or different couples who would come in, real married couples. And then they would be the father and mother to like five or six kids at once in this house. And they would cook for them and take care of them and mentor them. And, and then he would have a week off, you know, then he would maybe take time off for his uh, scouts or whatever when he needed to. But um, by all accounts, you know, he was a, a positive addition to the community. Mm-hmm. We'll be right back. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So tell me the idea of what it meant to be cool back then. And I'm using cool in quotation marks because you know what I'm talking about. You know, when we say cool, kids who grew up in the late 70s and early 80s, being cool is code for getting high. It means, you know, when I had a friend and my friend said, don't worry about him, he's cool. That means he also gets high. And he's not going to snitch on us. He's not going to tell anyone, right? Exactly. So it's not Fonzie cool. It's not the, hey, with the thumb up and the Fonzie cool. Yeah. Most of the uh, parents from that generation, what I call the madman generation or the silent generation, their drug of choice definitely was alcohol, alcohol and cigarettes. So, it's, you know, like I said, a lot of my friends would say, hey, let's go to Mike's house because his mom is cool, you see? Mm-hmm. And that means that like, we could go to Mike's house and we can go in his backyard and smoke a joint and then we can hang out and watch TV and reek of pot, you know, and his mom isn't going to say anything because she's right. cool, you know. So for Chuck to come along and to be that house, that's what Chuck was in that neighborhood. Chuck was the cool house. That's where these kids could go and they could smoke pot either with him or whatever. 
and he was cool. Like he wouldn't, like he wouldn't tell their parents. He wouldn't, they knew they wouldn't get in trouble. Well, it was a safe space. Yeah. And this is part of the dynamic. Not only was he cool about the kids smoking pot, um, more often than not, he was the one providing the pot. And of course, we're talking about that brown pot that <laughs> by today's standard, you know, it's it's nothing like the pot yeah. of today. Um, we're talking about that brown Colombian stuff. Um, it's like if you got a bag of Colombian gold, it was like, woo, Colombian gold. Like, you know, <laughs> I mean, I don't even know what gold meant, but it was it was brown. The pot was brown. You God, know? you remember the headaches you would get from that yeah, stuff? After you got to about five joints. Yeah. When you got to close to about five joints, you, you, you'd realize that you can't really get high anymore, but your, your head just starts to pound. Oh. <laughs> you know? There's no doubt that Richie and Chuck had become close friends, practically family. For Richie, Chuck offered a safe place, a cool house to hang out at. And Richie never had to worry too much about his strict parents when he was with Chuck. The scouts, and especially the camping trips, provided Richie with an escape, a sort of light at the end of the tunnel. Richie's loyalty to Chuck was unshakable. And Chuck's willingness to share weed and to get high with Richie is a testament to how much he actually trusted this kid. Their bond was strong, which only makes the next part of the story so inconceivable. So tell me what happened on the night of July 18th, 1979. So um, Richie's father, he starts to get concerned around 8.30 because Richie never came home for dinner. Uh, the last time his mom saw him was around 4 o'clock and he was walking over to Chuck's and saying that he was going to go water the lawn for Chuck. Um, his mom was surprised that he wasn't home for dinner because she was making his favorite dish, whatever that dish was. Of course, no cell phones in those days, and um, his mom started getting worried around probably as early as 7 o'clock, but they didn't really start panicking until closer to 8, um, and they started calling around, she and her husband, Richie's father, and getting no answers from anyone. No one saw Richie. No one knew who he was. So it just based on where he said he was going to be, the last time he was, they saw him, was, uh, or his mom saw him, was uh, at Chuck's. So the father walks over to Chuck's house and looks around and, you know, there's no lights on um, and um, doesn't really see anything, goes back. Um, But I don't know, I guess he had a gut feeling or something. Um, Around this time, Richie's dad called Chuck to ask him if he knew where Richie was. And Chuck just said no. And so eventually his, uh, his Richie had two older sisters and um, sister's boyfriend and the father went looking for him. So they went back to the house this time with like more in, in a more determined manner. Hmm. And um, 
eventually the father looked through the front window and the curtain wasn't drawn all the way closed. Of course, there were no lights on because no one was home, but um, he could see through the crack in the curtain that there was what he described as um, a duffel bag on the floor. And so he calls Chuck back again and he says, uh, Chuck, I think there's something in your house. On, you know, I'm looking for Richie and I'm, I'm worried. And he says, there seems to be something in your living room floor I can see through the window. And Chuck says, well, you know, I'm going camping this weekend. So maybe I left some camping gear on the living room floor. And so that puts uh, Richie's dad's mind at ease, you know, for a few minutes because he started thinking, you know, oh, my goodness. What if, you know, finally, uh, they get the idea to sort of go around the side of the house and, um, and there's a bathroom window on the South side of the house. And, um, the boyfriend noticed that the bathroom window was broken. The bathroom window was kind of perched up high. And, um, unless you were super, super tall, um, you would need someone to help boost you up. So I think it was the father boosted up the boyfriend because they were so worried. Um, And the father at one point said, I I hope that's not my son on the floor. Richie's dad calls Chuck, I think, a third time now. And um, he says, are you sure that's camping gear or something? He says, because I think there's a body in your living room. And then Chuck's words to Richie's father were, I pray to God that that's not Richie. A father's worst fear became true that night. They entered the building to find Richie's dead body lying on his right side on the living room floor, not quite 15 feet from the bathroom window in which he supposedly entered. The police were called and the house on Northeast 11th Court was immediately established as a crime scene. The owner of the house, Chuck Falco, who had been in Kendall working at his job with disadvantaged kids, was on his way back to Miami and would arrive within the hour. North Miami Beach cops were there, and um, then there was a detective was called because it was homicide. It was clear the coroner was there. The first officers on the scene described the crime scene, and um, they looked around and they, uh, they realized, you know, he had been shot, and um, there was a, a rifle at the scene, um, and uh, and the rifle had discharged and shot him in the chest. After entering the residence, the police observed that Richie had been struck in the chest by a projectile from a 22 caliber rifle. In many cases, a 22 gunshot wound is not fatal unless it hits a major organ. But in Richie's case, sadly, it was a deadly shot, piercing his heart. He probably died within minutes. 
They could tell he had been there for a while because rigor mortis had already set in. But what was most shocking, and something that certainly won't leave my mind anytime soon after reading the details of the police report, was the apparatus of Richie's death. And it is absolutely chilling. Strapped to a heavy wooden chair at the north end of a small hallway and aimed southward towards the bathroom door was a 22 caliber Marlin Glenfield rifle resting upside down with the trigger facing upwards. The front stock area had been secured to the back of the chair with a red bandana, while the green and yellow official Boy Scouts of America neckerchief had been used to secure the pistol grip area. A pair of heavy gray gloves padded the rifle against the back of the chair, and a seven-foot-long piece of white household string lie in a pile on the floor, the end still attached to the trigger, while a short length of the same string, barely an inch long, was found tied to the bathroom doorknob. The bathroom door was inward opening, so if one were in the bathroom with the door closed, that person would be pulling the door towards him or herself, right? And on the other side of the door, tied around the doorknob, was a string, like your typical household string. And that string wrapped around the back of the chair and then was tied around the trigger of the 22 caliber rifle. The chair was heavy and stable enough not to tip over when the bathroom door was opened. And a 22 caliber of this kind is light enough and it doesn't have much kick when fired, making it ideal for this purpose. And so when Richie opened the door, Richie went through the bathroom window and the bathroom door was closed. And so he opened the bathroom door and when he pulled the doorknob towards him, he pulled the string, which discharged the rifle. The bullet, 22 caliber bullet, went through the door. The door was a hollow plywood door. There's like nothing to those doors. And so it just went right through the door and struck Richie in the chest. And killed him. And he bled to death within minutes. He was dead. Next to this macabre mechanism, separated by perhaps just inches, Richie's dead body laid on the living room floor. A small amount of blood was noted on the armrest of the chair. So this was a booby trap, and um, it was set up by Chuck, and it was lethal. Okay, can you explain to me just how did he think this thing up? He knew what he was doing because he had set these up in Vietnam um, when he was over during the war. And um, he said that when they were when his platoon was out on patrols, um, they would often set up a booby trap uh, in case whoever was on on watch would fall asleep because someone would always be on guard on watch. But a lot of times, you know, they were exhausted and then the guy on watch would fall, pass out. Mm-hmm. And so they would set up one of these booby traps just in case. And um, if the gun went off, even if it didn't shoot someone, it would um, still scare someone and it would wake the rest of the guys up. But 
how would they set up something like that in the jungle? It would be a tripwire that would run on, you know, on the ground. So it was a little bit more elaborate. Um, the, okay. the one that he set up in his house was actually easier. And would they set this up in tents or in a barracks or just or out in the open somewhere? They did have barracks. There were times when they would sleep in a barracks. That, so there was a door. They could okay. set it up just the same way as, that he set it up at his house. But um, they also would set them up when they were on patrol in tents, sleeping in tents. Or even if they were just sleeping in the jungle, they would set up a trip wire. So when someone was walking towards them and wouldn't see the string, you know, they would just, you know, step on it or pull it. And the string was, you know, it's just basic geometry, how you set it up. Okay. We'll be right back. So can you explain to me more about the actual booby trap and how it functioned? How did the thing work? The gun is sitting sort of, I guess you would say like across the chair. Yeah. Side to side. Right, exactly. Yeah. And the kind of chair it was, which, you know, I've seen pictures of it. Um, it seems like it's, it's kind of a heavy chair, like a, you know, a burly chair. And, um, and it had like a backrest that had sort of two pillars on each side you know, where you could wrap the string around the backside of one of those pillars and then up towards the trigger. Mm-hmm. You see, so it's it's pretty basic. Like if, you, if you're opening the door and you pull the string in that direction, um, you're going to be pulling the trigger. And so that little tug is all it would take to discharge the weapon. Now, what was Chuck's motivation for setting this thing up? Why did he do this? Right. So the motive, right? Yeah. So because Chuck had pot and it wasn't a secret um, and he had given it to the kids uh, and smoked it with the kids multiple times. Mm -hmm. I mean, at some point, Richie decided that he didn't always want to wait for Chuck to offer him pot or he didn't always want to ask Chuck for pot. He just knew the pot was there. And at some point he made the decision that if he could just get in the house... And just take a little bit, you know, just enough to, you know, roll a couple joints that he could pretty much have pot whenever he wanted. You know, Chuck was dealing pot at the time, so he probably bought it in pounds. In those days, you know, with the Colombian pot, it wasn't uncommon for someone to buy a pound of weed. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the pot was there. Richie knew it was there. And at some point, which we don't really know, no one really knows for sure, um, but at some point... Richie decided to take liberties, he probably thought at the time that he wasn't really hurting Chuck. He probably justified it in his mind by thinking that, well, Chuck would probably give this to me anyway, but I don't want to bother him. Like, I don't want to always have to ask him for a joint or ask him for weed, you know? So obviously it's wrong. It's stealing and he shouldn't have been doing it. Uh, But when did he start doing this? I think the first time he broke into Chuck's house was probably, you know, a few months before this incident took place. And uh, he went through a door. There was a a back door that led to a utility closet or something in the the backside of Chuck's house. And in the process, he wound up breaking the door. 
And um, Richie liked Chuck, even though he was doing this. Um, he didn't want to piss off Chuck and he didn't want to hurt Chuck in a serious way. And when he saw how mad Chuck was that somebody had broken his door, um, mm-hmm. that disturbed Richie. Like Richie made the decision at that point to not do that again. You told me something earlier about him having some keys. Yeah. So the next couple times uh, Richie broke in, it's assumed Richie actually didn't break in through anything. He actually used keys because there's two theories here. One theory was that Chuck gave Richie a spare set of keys in case Richie needed to get in in an emergency or something because he trusted Richie. Okay. And so Richie had a set of keys. The other version is that Richie stole a spare set of keys from Chuck. So, but either way, Richie had keys and he went in there at least two other times, two or three more times and uh, took pot. Uh, Except at this point, he realized that when he broke in, he couldn't just take pot because he knew that Chuck would know that whoever was breaking in would have been one of the kids because he knew that the only thing that was missing was pot. So Richie being a smart kid, figured, okay, I want Chuck to think that this is a real criminal breaking into his house. And so on other occasions, he started stealing other things from Chuck. One thing that he started taking was Chuck had a silver dollar collection. Hmm. And, um, and Richie took quite a few of them. And those, you know, they were, they're worth a lot more now, but they were, you know, collectible then too in the 70s. So when Chuck noticed that some of his silver dollars were missing, he started to suspect maybe that it was really a criminal, um, someone, you know, who's just breaking into his house to steal things, you know, to sell. Um, and it wasn't just pot. So this became a problem. And yeah. um, two days before this incident took place on July 16th, Richie decided that he couldn't use the keys anymore. And there's a reason for that, because uh, Chuck started to suspect that whoever was going into his house the two previous times must have a pair of keys. And Chuck realized if scenario A, if the keys were stolen, that he didn't have that spare set of keys or scenario B, which is he gave the set of keys to Richie and he knows that Richie is the only other person with these keys, right? So he's going to know that it's Richie. If somebody's going into his house and Mm -hmm. stealing things and they're not breaking through a door or through a window and they're just basically walking through the front door, remember, Chuck is gone every other week. So he's vulnerable, right? He works seven days and then he's off seven days. He's on a schedule. Right. So those seven days that he's not there, Richie can just use the keys and walk through the front door and nobody in the neighborhood is going to be suspicious because they know Richie and Chuck are friends. The problem is that Richie's smart enough to know that Chuck will eventually come to the realization that it can only be Richie who's stealing from him because who else has the keys? Right. So Richie decides to break in to keep the blame or possible suspicion off of him. Exactly. That's exactly it. Yeah. So he does that on a day when Chuck is actually um, home, right, which is a Monday, I guess he thought Chuck was leaving to go to Kendall. And because that that was a week that Mm -hmm. he was supposed to be gone. And uh, in Chuck's statement, he says that, you know, he talked to Richie for a little while um, and then he left and he Chuck actually went to the bank. And Richie, I guess he didn't tell Richie that he was only going to the bank. 
And when Chuck left, Richie assumed that Chuck had headed back to Kendall and that Chuck would be gone, you know, for the rest of the week. Mm -hmm. So Richie now had devised this plan that he was going to go through the bathroom window and make it obvious that whoever broke into his house, into Chuck's house this time, had come through the bathroom window. So this would take the pressure off of the assumption about somebody using keys to get in, right? Okay. So that was the strategy. What went wrong was that Chuck wasn't gone for the day, and Richie almost got caught that day. And in haste, he barely got out. And that might actually be why the window broke was because he was rushing to get out and he couldn't be as careful with the glass as he had been when he went in and he wound up breaking the glass on his way out to get away from, you know, Chuck almost caught him red-handed. Right. And I don't even think he got anything that day. I think he basically had just gotten into the house and that's when Chuck pulled up and he ran back into the bathroom and just crawled up, you know, back through the window and, you know, just got out and then just escaped off the side of the house without Chuck noticing. We're into Tuesday now and Richie goes back over there. Um, They're talking about the camping trip. This is what Chuck says in his statement to the detective. That's when he says, you know, Richie had a cold or, you know, was, was sick. And he told Richie to get rest and because he wanted Richie to go on the camping trip. But he definitely asked Richie a bunch of questions. He asked him, you know, if he had heard anything, anyone, you know, that he would suspect was, you know, of course, at the time, Chuck already had ideas of his own, who he thought it might be, but he was just double checking with Richie. And Richie uh, basically said, no, he didn't know anything about it. And at that point, It was clear to Richie that Chuck was going to be leaving for Kendall for the next few days. This was Tuesday, the 17th of July. It was probably about two or three in the afternoon. So at that point, Richie goes home because Chuck says, go home and get some rest. Mm -hmm. And that's when Chuck is about to leave. He gets into his car and he's still pissed off because he wasn't able to get the window fixed. He has to go back to Kendall now. He knows that his house is vulnerable. He knows now because the window's broken. If this burglar returns, it's going to be really easy for them to get in. And he's irritated by that. And he's about to drive away and he's in the car and he says, oh, then it dawned on me. I could just set up a booby trap. Now, that's a quote. I mean, that's literally the way he told the detective. Mm -hmm. To me, that just doesn't even sound believable. Uh, This guy obviously was thinking You know, I mean, if he came up with the idea of the booby trap and he had set it up multiple times before when he was in Vietnam, this was in the forefront of his mind. He was probably thinking the whole time, I'm not going to leave and go to Kendall until I set up this booby trap because I don't want anyone coming into my house. Right. So um, he was just softening it when he said it to the detective because he wanted to make it seem like, oh, and then it dawned on me that. It turns out that I have this ability to, you know. Um, yeah, well, he wanted it to sound less premeditated. Right, exactly. He set it up in such a way where um, he claims that it was aiming towards the wall and not at the door. And he couldn't understand why it hit the door. And the detective actually suggests to him, he says, is it possible that when the boy uh, opened the door that the string pulled the chair slightly in the direction of the door. And Chuck's response was, that must have been what it was. Hmm. Okay. Now that's a very important thing 
that comes up again later on. And we will be talking more about that. Right. So Chuck leaves Kendall that night and drives back. What happens when he arrives at the crime scene? So like I had said earlier, um, Chuck had been on the phone with Richie's father and by now suspected that maybe it was Richie. Okay. He knew now that somebody got shot by his booby trap and that it wasn't good. And um, this person was either dead or seriously injured. And we don't know what state of mind he was in when he was driving, except the only person who would know that would be him. But um, we do know that when he arrived and he saw Richie's father and, of course, who was distraught, um, and um, it didn't take him long to conclude that it, it actually was Richie um, who was, you know, dead on the living room floor. And um, there are some witnesses there that... Um, that I believe I've spoken with and they will attest to the fact that Chuck had a very legitimate emotional breakdown. I mean, he was, he was very upset and, um, you know, he was crying and he was banging on the car and, uh, saying stuff like, you know, Oh, why did it have to be Richie and, and stuff like that. Uh, I, I do believe that he was not expecting it to be of all the kids, you know, that he might've suspected. I don't think he, thought that it was it was going to be Richie. So tell me about the accomplice theory. Okay, so the cops start to look around at the situation and they start to realize that the chances of Richie getting through that bathroom window... Um, through the glass. Remember, the glass was broken at this point. And to be able to pull himself up on the ledge and then pull himself through the window, you know, without getting cut uh, would have been too difficult. Richie was, in my opinion, I, I remember him being about an inch taller than I was at the time. I was 5'6". So I would venture to say Richie was 5'6", or maybe even 5'7", at the time. And um, that's just not tall enough to get through this window. He needed to get a boost. Someone had to give him a boost up. So the cops also look at the situation and they start to realize that, yeah, there probably was an accomplice. There probably was somebody with Richie when he went through this bathroom window, that he wasn't acting alone. And that's when Chuck says, I think I know who was with Richie. This accomplice that was with Richie is the person that Chuck thought was the person who was breaking into his house, right? He didn't, he wasn't suspecting Richie, but he was suspecting this other kid. And so what he was surprised about was that Richie was with this other kid. He wasn't surprised that one of the kids had broken into his house because that was his hunch, right? So um, when the cops ask about the possibility of there being an accomplice, that's when Chuck mentions the name Jerry Brakowski. And the cops start looking for him. You know, he's not going to be charged with much. I mean, he was, uh, you know, he could be charged with burglary because he was part of that crime. But at this point, the cops are more interested in just uh, asking him questions and and trying to figure out what happened. Yeah, exactly. And so um, my research and where I've gone with this is that I've come to the realization that there weren't two kids breaking into the house that day. There were actually three. And that leads us to a character in this story 
whose name is Tony Simmons. Next time on Booby Trap. This whole time we'd been hitchhiking, people were just ignoring us, and all of a sudden there's this car. Right before I close the door, he says, Don't get shot. The only person I can think of that you know he reminds me of, it would be like a cross between Charles Nelson Riley and Elton John. He had this cassette player. He goes, Mike, he tape recorded the whole thing. Well, yeah, of course, Tony tape records everything. Miami Chronicles Booby Trap is produced, written, and recorded by James Archer and Michael Fragamani. We'd like to thank the following people for their help and contributions in creating this episode. Dan Wool, Mark McCartney, Charlie Pickett and the Eggs, Small Time Napoleons, The Big Wheel, Liana Echeverry, and the team at the Apostrophe Podcast Company. But most of all, a very heartfelt thanks to you, our listeners. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Do you want to know more about vampires, werewolves, zombies, and man-made monsters? Would you like to know more about the classic Universal Monster movies responsible for creating the entire horror genre? Then listen to our podcast, Let's Talk Monsters. Where we discuss everything monsters. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts.